You're listening to the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute podcast, where leading thinkers come together to discuss the latest insights, facts and stories about social cohesion in Australia. Why does it matter that so many students and so much of the fee revenue comes from one country? That makes us vulnerable to political pressure from China, which does keep this kind of threat dangling there that if it is upset with Australia, and it has been, it could just stop the pipeline of students to our universities. And that could really plunge our universities into serious trouble. Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast episode from the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. My name's James Button, and today I'm joined in the studio by Julie Sago. Hi, Julie. Hi, James. So Julie's a freelance writer, and she's a columnist for The Age. We work together on The Age. She's also author of the latest narrative produced by the Institute's Applied Research Centre. It's entitled Australia's Chinese Lesson, The Nation's Urgent Need to Engage with International Students from China. And it comes at a really interesting time, this narrative, because Australia is engaged in a big debate about how it should engage with China. Obviously, China is a huge economic power for Australia of our top five industries. Four of them, China is the number one importer. Chinese students come to Australia, as we're about to discuss. And there's the whole question of how Australia responds to a country that has grown very rapidly, a country with a large population, figures powerfully in Australia's past and in, in Australia's future. So there's a big China debate underway. And in the midst of this, we have this very large number of, of international students from China. So, Julie, I'm going to start by asking you, let's paint a portrait of the Chinese students in Australia. How many are there? What kind of people are they? What parts of China do they come from? What are they studying? And what role do they have in Australian universities? Well, overwhelmingly, I think you'd find the students from China in the group of eight research-intensive universities, so I guess what you'd call our most prestigious universities in Australia. There's about 200,000 of them overall, but that's across all sectors. So there are quite a number, for instance, in the school system and in the TAFE system and so on. This narrative is concerned with the students in universities. We don't know the exact numbers, and that's an issue, some people say. The universities aren't required to disclose raw numbers, but we know that there are about, say, last year, about 150,000 enrolments. So that's in higher education, so across universities. And according to one report, there's more than 40% of them in just four universities. So Monash, Melbourne, University of Sydney and the University of New South Wales. So the two big universities in our two big cities. Yeah, that's right. Prestigious universities. Yeah. So statistically why you might find that one in 10 uh, university students across the country is from China, those numbers aren't evenly spread. So they're concentrated in a few universities About roughly half of them will be studying business or commerce. And they tend to come from wealthier parts of China, right? They they tend to come generally from wealthier parts of China. For obvious reasons. That's for obvious reasons. I mean, for instance, a master's degree from one of these universities will set you back about $40,000 a year, and that's in tuition alone. And China's not as wealthy a country as Australia. 
So they, they, this will be big money, I guess, for a Chinese family to put out to send their son or daughter to Australia. It will be. So let's get a sense because I think what has happened is there's been a remarkable growth in the number of Chinese students and in the proportion of international students. That's changed quite dramatically over the last sort of 10, 15 years. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So I think the numbers have tripled, for instance, since the early 2000s. And that's been a function of many things. Uh, For a while, Australia had a virtually kind of open door policy for skilled migrants where students from China could come enrol in universities and then get permanent residency in Australia. So there was a spike in numbers then. Later on, there were reforms to Australia's higher education sector and more students, more overseas students were encouraged towards the universities. Then that's how that's how generally we've seen those big numbers. So what we've seen is that in 1986, the Hawke government allowed universities to charge full fees for overseas students. And basically since that time, the proportion of the federal government's contribution to university budgets has declined. And at the same time, that very luckily, very fortunately for Australia, coincided with China's incredible economic growth, the growth of its middle class, its open door policy, where young people were actively encouraged to go out, learn what they could in the West. And we've been the beneficiaries of that. This is an astonishing number. Give us the number of how many Chinese students have left China over time to study in other countries. 1.2 million, I recall from your paper. Right. That's either all numbers or people who are away at the moment. We can check that. But it's it's a huge number. They go to other countries as well, Canada, the United States, some go to Europe. Yeah, They do. It's a huge number. In any given year, most of them will go to the United States. But Australia is consistently in the top three. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. And in terms of the number of Chinese students we actually have, I mean, first of all, we've got more international students generally per capita than comparable countries. And within that cohort, the concentration of students from China is greater here than it is elsewhere We've become really reliant on this industry. It's very important to our economy. Our first export is iron ore. That's right. Our second export is another mineral. I'm not sure what it is. And then I think third or fourth is uh, our international education industry. Yes, that's right. And those first three sectors of our economy are all China dependent. And they're all China dependent, (laughs) which we'll we'll come to that because, of course, the international students is a part of the whole debate about Australia's engagement with China. Absolutely. But before we get there, can we talk a bit more about two things? One is how have Chinese students come to assume a larger proportion of all international students? Because the international student market, of course, is not just China in the past. It's been India, still is India, Indonesia, Thailand, other parts of Southeast Asia, other students have come. But over time, the Chinese students have become the dominant group within that student cohort. And then another question is, as they've become more dominant, Perhaps you could say a bit about how universities have come to rely on those students for their funding. Well, they've become more dominant, as we've discussed, the Australia's international education market became oriented towards the universities, so towards higher education institutions explicitly. And that was because 
all sorts of problems emerged in the mid-2000s when there was that very clear nexus between overseas students coming to Australia and overseas students staying in Australia. So that's when we saw all the dodgy colleges, all the rorts happening, and that sector was then cleaned up. And so international students are explicitly encouraged to go to higher education institutions to the universities. And it's funded guess, by the Gillard government, right? Is that in the, or the Rudd government? It was about 10 years ago. Yes, it was the Knight Report. Yep. I think it was 2011 when that came out. And it gave, it gave incentives basically for overseas students to go to our higher education institutions. It made that process more streamlined as opposed and to easier, going as opposed to going, say, to a TAFE. And when you're kind of emphasising that part of the market, you're going to attract a certain kind of student. And I guess in terms of the globally mobile students today, it really will be those families from China that can afford that kind of fees. So I guess that's the main reason for why the Chinese students have taken up such a large proportion of international student places and universities generally. And universities have become very reliant on their fees. Universities have become incredibly reliant on their fees. We saw that last year three auditors general in three states, that's in Victoria, in New South Wales and in Queensland, criticised, and not for the first time, universities in their states for being overly reliant on international student fees generally. And the universities in New South Wales were singled out explicitly for sourcing a really high proportion. I think in the case of Sydney Uni, in the case of New South Wales Uni, more than 73% of their international student revenue from just one country. That's China. Big numbers. Why is that consequential? Why does it matter that so many students and so much of the fee revenue comes from one country? Well, it matters, I suppose, for the same reason that it matters that Australia is so dependent on China in the macro sense, that makes us vulnerable, makes the universities vulnerable to things that are perhaps uh, cyclical, like differences in exchange rates and things like that, that might mean that uh, student numbers drop. It also makes the universities vulnerable to political pressure from China, which does keep this kind of threat dangling there that if it is upset with Australia, and it has been, We've been in the deep freeze for a few years now because of political tensions between the two countries, that it could just stop the pipeline of students to our universities and that could really plunge our universities into serious trouble. And people have warned about this, haven't they? They have indeed, yes. Yes. Before we get to that, because I want to talk about the larger Australia-China issue in a moment, let's go a bit more deeply into the students themselves. Tell us a bit about... When they come to Australia, what are they hoping to get out of their time in Australia? Uh, You mentioned that about half of them do business or commerce courses, so that's a clear focus. But in general, what are they hoping to achieve from their time in Australia, both at the academic level but also at the broader social level of connecting with Australia? And then are those hopes fulfilled? At the academic level, I think they're after prestigious degrees. So that's why we find them at our top universities. On a social level, I think overwhelmingly, and look, this scant amount of data, which is in itself perhaps revealing, 
But I think socially, overwhelmingly, they want to connect. They want to integrate into Australian society. It's very difficult for them to do that. And I mean, it's hard to generalise because obviously there are many Chinese, many, many Chinese students who come here and who do form meaningful links with Australians. But overall, what the few studies that we have are showing us is that by far from any other group of international students, Chinese students are the most isolated. They have the least to do with Australian society. That's not good. That's not good. That's not good. So there are some studies that suggest that it's not uncommon for students from China to come here, spend years here, and never even be invited into an Australian home, for example. So the little that we know suggests indeed that they live together in high-rise, you know, student accommodation with other international students, most of them from China, that fewer of them work compared to other international students. The ones that do probably fall back a little bit on the Chinese diaspora, which is no bad thing, but it does mean, for instance, they're not really practising their English. We know, for instance, that a number of them are enrolled in master's courses. Some of these courses have nearly 90% international student enrolment, which is quite extraordinary. Many of them are not even studying alongside Australian students. And then there is this other factor that I suppose would not have been around many years ago, right? And that is that they find themselves in different digital worlds too. Students who come from China, they come from essentially behind Beijing's Great Firewall, right? Which means there's no Facebook, they are not going to be on Twitter, they are not going to be on the same social media platforms as their domestic students. They're going to be on WeChat, which is uh, China's social media platform, and they're going to be consuming different news as well generally. So there is some research being done that suggests that the international students that come here are not consuming the sort of same mainstream news sources that the rest of the student population, to the extent that they're interested in the news, do. It's really interesting. And is WeChat monitored by the Chinese government? WeChat is monitored by the Chinese government. So I spoke to a number of students who, you know, say without any great kind of concern that they are careful what they say on WeChat, of course. And there will be certain material that will be blocked for Chinese account holders on WeChat too. The separate worlds of Chinese international students and domestic students are not just physical Mm. and they're not just academic in the courses, they're also digital. They They are also digital. And, of course, young people live so much in the online world that that's a very significant part of the the separation. That's right. And it's quite fascinating. A lot of them, for instance, some of the news sources that are very popular with Chinese international students are these tabloid publications that are actually produced in Australia but they are kind of run from Beijing, you know, from, I suppose, from China, I should say. They tend to sort of have a pro-Beijing slant and they they fulfil these students' needs. So they talk to them about the kind of things that they need to know about how to adjust to Australian society, issues to do with visa, issues to do with work and, and housing and all sorts of things. But at the same time, sometimes they have a bit of a slant and they occasionally might provoke outrage on political questions and so on. Even those who are kind of consuming local news sources 
are consuming local news sources that are specially targeting or talking to Chinese international students. That's so interesting and something that's that is just fascinating. Very difficult to address <laughs> yeah. for here. One really interesting point in your paper, in your narrative, mm-hmm. was that a lot of the students, the Chinese students, are enrolled in masters by coursework. Yeah. And when they're studying with domestic students, uh, there is some tension sometimes around the group study process. I don't know how big this is as an issue, but you raise it in your paper uh, that the domestic students sometimes feel the Chinese students don't have the English language capacity to really contribute to the group work. And I imagine the Chinese students feel that they're just racing all the time to try to just keep up with the work. Tell us about that Mm. issue and and how large you think it might be. Yeah, well, that's right. So I guess since the time that you and I were at uni, James. um, Long time ago. Long time ago. Long time ago. Group work has become more common and more common as a form of assessment. And look, you hear this anecdotally all the time and this kind of complaint does show up, I think, in formal feedback, which is that the the few, I suppose, Australian students who, who find themselves in these master's courses with in classes that are heavy with overseas students can feel resentful about what they perceive are the weaker language skills of the overseas students who they feel might be dragging down their own assessment in coursework or they feel that, you know, there is an obligation on them to assist and help and help those students through. And, I mean, that does seem to be a theme that is really definitely out there. And as far as the Chinese students go, I mean, yes, I have some comments from Chinese students in this paper who say, you know, that they're very conscious of doing their bit in this coursework. They're conscious of the fact that they might be holding others back and that they think that they have to work that much harder. So there's a lot of pressure on them as well. So that the more pressure, the harder they need to work, the more they're spending time in the library, the more isolated they are. It's a tough life. It's a tough life. So while this has been going on, we've been reaping the economic benefits of these students, yet sort of ignoring them at some level. Mm. And what I took from your paper is that while this has been going on, China's place in the world has been changing. It's becoming a much larger economy, much more powerful player in world affairs, tensions rising between China, notably the United States, but some other countries as well. And these changes in the political standing of China are reflected to some extent in the student body of Chinese students in Australia. Mm -hmm. And give us a sense of how the Chinese students in Australia have come to express their views about politics. It's complicated. Your paper makes it very clear that it's complicated. Give us a sense of those, perhaps a few of the different views that have emerged amongst Chinese students in Australia. Yeah. So I suppose the ground has shifted pretty sharply beneath our feet um, as as we've been sleeping pretty much, as you say. So China is not so much rising now, it has risen. So, So quickly. So quickly, so quickly. And what we're learning about the new bolder, more assertive China under Xi Jinping is that it is really projecting its power all over the globe. What was the phrase that Deng Xiaoping used to use that we've now sort of moved beyond? That's right, hide and bide. Hide your power. Hide your power and bide your time. 
Yeah. So Deng Xiaoping in 1979, as I said, embraced a kind of open door policy for China, you know, sent, encouraged students to go out into the West and learn what there was, come back, build the nation. He accepted a certain amount of them, would not come home. And most of them did not come home in that period. That window is closing at the moment. So there has been, for instance, a lot written about how the value of international education is being subtly talked down in China itself, as is the value of kind of many foreign ideas. And there is also a lot being written about how international students specifically are being singled out along with the Chinese diaspora as a group that is specially tasked with promoting China's agenda abroad. In the case of international students, that might also mean keeping their fellow students in line. So we've heard recently about something called the United Front Work Department, which I don't think I ever had heard of before. In China. In China, which is an arm of the Communist Party, which manages the party's relations with key groups outside of the party. International students have been recently apparently elevated to become a concern of that department. How interesting. And you start your paper with a story about scuffles and some relatively low-level violence, but violence nevertheless on an Australian campus. Tell us about that. Yeah. So that was uh, an example of violence kind of spilling over as a result of the uh, Hong Kong protests. So in August this year, there were a number of uh, protests on behalf of the students in Hong Kong. Protests here. Protests here. Protests Chinese students. Protests, well, protests on a number of university campuses, Chinese students and others, protesting to show solidarity for the protesters in Hong Kong. And there were counter demonstrators that turned up. So other students with a pro-Beijing line. In one particular case at the University of Queensland, like you said, there was some violence, the police were called in and so on. And so I guess that was really the first sense that we in Australia got, you know, in the sense of, you know, the broad population of the fact that something was going on. You know, something more pronounced was happening. In terms of, I suppose, the Chinese Communist Party's push to have its students be a voice for for their agenda. Now, that doesn't mean that the students have got the memo, so to speak. I think there are a broad range of views within the community of Chinese international students. That really comes out in your piece. You know, there's yeah. a real sense that this is not, we should never see it as simple or as, as uniform. There's many different views within that community. That was the sense I had. And even within the one Chinese student might have shifting views about... Yes, that's right. ..about their own feelings about China, their True. feelings about yep. the Chinese history, the Tiananmen Square, the... Great Leap Forward, all, all of the recent you know, yeah, that's right. cataclysmic events in Chinese history. Tell, yeah. tell us a bit about, you get a real sense in your paper, it comes out really strongly that it's like people are really thinking hard about these things and coming to Australia for some people is quite confronting. Yeah, I wouldn't say for most people. I think most of them are not thinking hard actually. Okay. I think most like domestic students really aren't very concerned with politics. It's the majority of Chinese students I think who come here are here to get their degree they're not interested in all this other stuff. They're not interested in being 
exemplary agents for the Chinese Communist Party, despite its efforts to reach out to them. But so we shouldn't be too alarmed about that. There's been I some stories in the be. paper, but you're, you're not super fussed about it. I don't it. think we should be alarmed about it, nor do I think that we should completely ignore it. I think one of the most alarming things that did come out about those protests was that one of the Chinese students who joined the protests on behalf of Hong Kong subsequently had the authorities turning up at the home of their families back in China, knocking on the door and saying, oh, don't you think your your child should uh, be a bit more disciplined? That's really deeply concerning. That's why. So I think that um, the authorities, the universities, the Australian government, the security agencies really have to ensure that we have campuses that are free of intimidation. And this plays into the larger issue of the whole Australia-China debate that is unfolding yes. very rapidly at the moment and not unfolding in a very clear way, if I can put it that way. It's, I think Australians feel quite uncertain about how to respond to China's rise and give us a sense from your research of how the international student issue, the Chinese student issue, plays into that larger debate about how Australia should engage with with an assertive China? Well, Australia has been pushing back against this more assertive China more than almost any other Western country. Interesting. Yep. So we've become kind of the example for a lot of other countries around the world, especially with the Turnbull government's foreign interference laws. So we have been having this increasingly intense debate about how to manage a China that we are heavily dependent on economically. So 30% of our trade is with China. I mean, that's nearly three times the amount of our trade with our second biggest trading partner, which is Japan. And at the same time, we are trying to figure out how to protect our democracy, like you say, from this bolder China, which is prepared to project its power and influence and use leverage wherever it can. And as far as the students go, I think think it's a really difficult one. I think they're in a really vulnerable position. The students? I I think the students are in a very vulnerable position because there is all this scrutiny now about Chinese Communist Party's attempts to project its influence onto university campuses, whether through the Confucius Institutes, through the attempts. Tell us us what Confucius Institutes are. Well, they are institutes that have been set up at Australian universities. Um, They are funded by China. Their role is to promote Chinese culture officially. Some of the more controversial institutes have been set up with a bit of an out clause that allows Beijing to have ultimate control over what is taught. So that's the... This has troubled some people like the academic John Fitzgerald, for example. That's right. That's right. And and I think a number of universities are now reviewing their arrangements that do have this uh, clause in the contracts that gives Beijing and Beijing's agencies and authorities ultimate power. And basically the the evidence that is emerging very strongly is that these institutes are also part of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to project soft power and influence, you know, to be there to 
try and deter universities, for instance, for hosting information nights about uh, Tibet or about the Uyghurs. Uyghurs. So, or dissidents. Or yeah. dissidents, yeah. So the students, they're part of this of this narrative. I mean, as we know, like I said, the Chinese um, Communist Party does see its students as tools to be used to its advantage. And even though most of them don't buy into that, um, I think that they are in a vulnerable situation where China's projecting its power, Australia is pushing back, and they risk getting caught in the crossfire. I get a strong sense in your narrative that We've failed in a way as a country today. We haven't really done as well as we could do to really make these Chinese students feel welcome in Australia, to give them the best possible experience, both for their benefit but also for our benefit because these students will go back to China and in many cases take leadership positions and will carry their relationship with Australia through their lives. Do you think it's true that we've, we could have done better as a country? Do you, do you think, is that too harsh an assessment of, of our performance with the Chinese students? Could we have been more welcoming and more, more engaged? I think most certainly. So I think this idea that essentially universities have been using Chinese students as cash cows, I think that that's basically right. It's a transactional system, right? So that's the way it developed, you know, without any malice on anyone's part. But universities needed to plug a hole in their budgets and China, I think Peter Varghese, who is the current Chancellor of the University of Queensland, has said, you know. He was um, Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs. Yes, he was. He basically says China just emerged as the easiest answer to universities' budgetary problems. And yet in our history, we have the Colombo Plan, which you go into in some detail. That's right. Where where we actually really sought to give students from Southeast Asia Mm. um, a very rich experience of Australian life, a different world, obviously, 1950s and 60s. A very different world, but that's right. So the Australian government welcomed students to Australia, students from Asia and the Pacific, as part of an aid program with an explicit aim, and that was to contain the spread of communism. But because the federal government was invested in this program. For strategic For strategic, for its own political strategic reasons. It was very determined to ensure that these students had a positive experience, you know, that they were integrated into Australian society, that they developed deep bonds, and I suppose couldn't be more different to how our current predicament um, has come about. uh, An Indonesian student arriving in Melbourne and going to the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, going to the Melbourne Cup straight (laughs) away. day one. (laughs) That's right, yeah. And so I think have we failed? Uh, Yes, by basically just being complacent and kind of sleepwalking our way through the past few decades. Um, In a sense, the the kind of right hand being the government, uh, foreign policy people, not really paying attention to what the left hand being our higher education sector was doing. I think probably what I should say, though, is that the Chinese students here are not passive. So you asked me earlier, what are they you know, what do they want to get out of this experience? One thing that we've been seeing strongly, for instance, over the last few years is that they've actually been participating in student politics. This is really interesting. This is really paper. interesting. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, for instance, I think at Sydney University it's most pronounced where the head of the student government is um, a student who came originally, he was a migrant from China. and A uh, migrant rather than a student. 
Well, he's a student at Sydney University, but he I think he came to Australia as a migrant. With his family. With his family. But he, for instance, um, represents many Chinese students generally, international students, so that's a large part of his constituency. And so generally from the international students themselves are standing and winning um, kind of mainstream university positions, so not just as representatives of international student bodies, but beyond that, you know. And you see this as a positive. You're quite clear in your paper that this is, we shouldn't be alarmed by this. On the contrary, it's a sign of Chinese students engaging with our democratic institutions at the student level? I think so. I think it's overwhelmingly positive. Again, I mean, I think that we do need to be mindful of some risks. The strategic experts say, look, there is a risk if these students are using their positions to stifle, you know, freedom of speech and to stifle voices who might be critical of the Chinese Communist Party. But Look, there's no evidence, as far as we can tell, that um, the students standing for elections are agents of influence in any way. I think it is a, a positive trend. Now, a lot of those, most of the Chinese international students actually go home and return to China after their stay. And the evidence is a little bit mixed on whether they, what they do with their experience of democracy once they're back home, which I think is a really fascinating question. It certainly is. Mm. Not everybody's been happy with the, the rise of Chinese students in the student democratic forums. Tell us, Julie, about what happened at the Caulfield campus of Monash recently. Well, at the Caulfield campus on Monash, I think um, international students from China make up a huge proportion, probably the majority of the student body. And in the lead up to their student elections this year, the student government passed a rule that had to do with students being only eligible to stand for election if they could work a certain number of hours a week. I think it was something like 22 hours, whereas uh, international students are only allowed to work 20 hours a week. That's what their visa prescribes. So essentially it was a way of banning Chinese international students from standing for election so that they wouldn't win. Right. Basically. Pretty uh, yeah. blunt instrument. <laughs> That's a pretty blunt instrument. Um, the Monash University administrators were horrified. The state government quivered, you know, this was going to be sending potentially a terrible message to the international student market, you know, that Australia was actively discriminating against Chinese uh, students on campus. You know, the head of the Chinese uh, union bodies were saying this is plain racist and so on. And look, the university sort of stepped in to annul the elections. To annul, to annul the yeah. elections. I, I'm inclined to think that this is just student union politics as right. usual. You've been involved in it, right, James? I, I have <laughs> you have memories. It's ago. really a kind of whatever. I'll deny everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty intense scene. And they play dirty. It's, and yeah. they play yeah. very dirty. It's, it's the so, playground for for mainstream politics and they, they learn their tricks there. Yeah, whatever it takes. So maybe we say. shouldn't, um, without knowing all the details, perhaps we shouldn't be too Look, I would say that alarmed. it's, yeah, that this particular manoeuvre was certainly racist in effect. I'm not sure that it was an intent. It was a standard ploy to, <laughs> to win right. the election. Just to win the election. So tell us about uh, the people on campus who are trying to address the problem that you point to in your narrative, trying to build stronger bridges between the overseas students and the domestic student body and give 
Chinese students in Australia a richer experience here. There are some interesting proposals put forward in your paper. Mm. Maybe tell us about a couple of those. Yeah, so one proposal comes from uh, Professor Alan Patience, who is at Melbourne University, and he has for a long time actually been campaigning for an Australian-Asian studies course to be compulsory for all undergraduate students. So essentially it would mean that Australian students would be learning about China, about Asia, and vice versa. It might mean the students are kind of invited to debate big issues, you know, Tiananmen Square, one-party rule, those sort of things. Tricky, huh? You know, and and you're you're talking about a course. He's talking about a course. He's talking about a formal course. For everybody to do. For both. Or both undergraduate groups. For both undergraduate groups to essentially learn about each other. And mix. And mix. I think that that is a really interesting idea Uh, He's not the only one advocating it, so it does have a certain amount of support. I think that there might be problems. I think that it may be of limited effectiveness if it's a compulsory course, if it's actually just introduced as part of the curriculum world and it just becomes another subject. So I'm not sure that it would sort of deliver its its data. But I think it's a really interesting idea, definitely worth looking at. There are other sorts of proposals like uh, proposals for the federal and state governments to declare a international student weekend where uh, students would visit an Australian family. Proposals where the students generally are kind of prepared with Australian families when they come here, scaled up mentoring programs, uh, leadership programs. The Victorian government um, has an interesting, quite long-standing now program called Study Melbourne, where they work together with the universities to support international students. There's an actual drop-in centre where they can go. There is a sort of 24-7 desk. So I think that there are definitely moves to ease the isolation of Chinese students. I guess my issue is that all these proposals can start to sound like a bit of a shopping list unless we know what we're doing, unless there's some overarching philosophy that is guiding, strategy Mm. that is guiding the authorities, the universities, the government in how we host them. And what should that be, Julie? What should that strategy be? What might it be? Well, it would probably be, like you say, linked to the China debate and Australia's strategy overall when it comes to our biggest trading partner and the country that is really going to have a massive impact in our future and what it looks like. So I guess it would be a strategy about kind of modelling the sort of relationship that we want with China and that we want the way that we're going to kind of navigate all these pressures that are on us at the moment So it would be how can we nurture a future relationship, future trading relationship, and how can we do that while also protecting our democracy? It's difficult, isn't it, though, 
for many decades our great power relationship has been with the United States. Yeah. And the United States, while different in many ways, also has much history and similarities with with Australia. Large-scale democracies, open media, commitment to open discussion doesn't happen all the time, but certainly a, a, a commitment to that. Difficult with a country that is doesn't have uh, that same history and tradition. It comes out of a you know much stronger state. Not the commitment to open media. Not the commitment to discussing events in history with the same degree of openness as we might discuss events in our own history. You mentioned you know that course that might be held. You, I can straight off the bat see potential tensions around discussion of events like yeah. Tiananmen Square or you know, other episodes in China's past. So I guess that just shows how difficult the challenge is both for the universities but also for Australia more generally in engaging with China as China changes. Yeah, well, that's right. We sort of have to accept that if we don't engage with Chinese international students, I mean, Beijing is all too happy to step in to that vacuum. So we need to engage. As difficult as it is, we need to be in the game. We can. And I don't think that we can disentangle Chinese international students here from the bigger picture, from the bigger geopolitical picture, from our relationship with China. And I guess there are all those elements that you spoke about, the difficulty of hosting large number of students from, you know, like you say, an authoritarian state and becoming increasingly so. But there is another element as well, and that is a racial one, because we push back against Chinese Communist Party's projection of its power, and inevitably the line from the propaganda line back from China is, uh, well, Australia is racist. And that's been used explicitly about students as well. So, for instance, there might have been a a number of incidents, uh, violent incidents uh, involving Chinese, of of which Chinese students were victims a while back, and the the Chinese authorities uh, quite explicitly sort of turned that into a, you see, they are being uh, racially abused here. And that's a pretty dangerous situation. And I suppose that line has a particular potency in Australia, given our history. Given our history. Given the white Australia policy. And so that's another reason why the kind of hands-off business as usual approach just can't work for Australia anymore. Such a fascinating... Yeah, there's a real threat to social cohesion. So I suppose when it comes to what should be our approach and how should we be thinking of Chinese international students, we should also be thinking of this as a way of modelling racial harmony, openness, freedom, you know, multiculturalism. Yes, because, of course, the students are here, but there's also a Chinese diaspora population of about a million, about half a million born in China and another half a million from Chinese background who are Australian. They're all Australian and they're all finding their way in this country. And the Chinese student debate, in a sense, plays into that larger question of Australia still a country being built, you know, how do we integrate uh, newcomers from all different countries and and do that in a way that... uh, ensures they have the fullest opportunities to lead a, you know, complete life here. Yeah, that's right. And I think, as we said earlier, that Beijing is also very much reaching out to its diaspora as well. Come home. Yeah, come home. Be part of the big change. Come home, be our voice, amplify our voice. Um, Again, 
that's that's not to say that Chinese Australians are heeding that call with great enthusiasm, but it's a pressure. It's there, and, uh, and their economy is growing. China's going to the, the jobs opportunities might be greater. That's right in China than they might be in Australia. That's right. So the very value of a degree from a Western university, unless it's one of the really top ones, is falling. So that's another reason why complacency is not really an option anymore. Let's end this discussion by talking about a real strength of your paper is the the voices of Chinese students Mm. in the paper. Tell us a bit about some of the people that you spoke to for this narrative. Tell me their stories and... You either spoke to them or you quoted them from other documents. But one of the things that really makes this narrative rich is that you hear from Chinese students what they think. Yeah, absolutely. And the Chinese students who I did speak to, it was a great, you know, great privilege to be able to speak to them. Overall, just a really thoughtful and very generous group of people. How many would you have spoken to, do you think? Oh, I don't know. Ten? Yeah, probably, yeah. probably, yeah. I, I remember one, um, Vicky. Uh, well, Vicky is an interesting story. Yes. So Vicky was, in fact, a former student of mine. I taught um, creative nonfiction at Melbourne University and she came in, she had studied journalism in China and she came into this course really conflicted. So part of her wanted to investigate whether she had been brainwashed by Chinese Communist Party propaganda. Part of her was really defensive, really and proud on of the, China. Yeah, proud of China and really on the lookout for patronizing Western attitudes towards China. Vicky was just a, a fascinating, incredibly, incredibly feisty, extraordinarily talented student. We had one exchange about her final paper that got her upset. And she, in fact, went over my head to the course supervisor and alleged that I was trying to indoctrinate her into Western propaganda. Uh, We cleared up that misunderstanding. She wrote a final paper that was just exquisite. It was so intelligent. Uh, It was so honest. She, you know, tackled this question, am I brainwashed? Oh, really? Yeah, and came up with some incredible insights. I didn't hear anything else about Vicky until... I was doing, working on this narrative and reading everything that was coming out about Chinese international students and one day I started reading this uh, opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. I didn't look at who had written it but I just started reading it and all of a sudden it got to, you know, when my... uh, creative non-fiction tutor in 2016, (laughs) she suggested that I was was brainwashed and I got angry and went over her head and complained about her to the course coordinator. And, you know, suddenly I started screaming, oh, my God, (laughs) that's that's me. me. She's she's writing about me. Right. Look, she has become an outspoken dissident. She now addresses security forums in the United States about uh, Chinese Communist Party disinformation and so on. Now, she's not typical um, and might I say she's paid a really steep personal price for being outspoken. She has a an army of trolls uh, now mobilising against her. There's Beijing's um, mouthpiece newspapers have picked up her story, alleged that she's just trying to get political asylum in Australia. So she's really been a target. I think her family back home have also been a target. She's an example of the sort of complex person that our world throws up today. Yeah. Where she's got a foot in 
a number of places. Yeah, that's right. And I don't think her experience is typical. So I don't think that, you know, there are many Chinese students who come out here with the objective of becoming dissidents. But she is someone who we do have to keep in mind and to make sure that uh, she is allowed to flourish, that our campuses are safe from intimidation and that the international students that we host here are perfectly free to participate in our open society. And it comes back to an idea that is clear in your paper that if we actually invested more focus and energy on this group, we would be surprised, pleasantly surprised by the complexity of the group and but also the desire to engage with Australia. Oh, I think certainly. So there's yep. more there's more that the benefit could be both ways. Is is a Well, absolutely. Yes. So for many years there has been this ongoing debate probably since the Hawke years about how Australia can engage with Asia, you know, in a kind of generic sense and that that Australians are not properly learning Asian languages and are still largely ignorant of the or of the region in which in which we live. And yet all this time there has been this incredible resource right under our noses, which is all the international students, especially those from China, uh, right who are the, right here. In the cafe. Who are right in, here. In, in we don't have to go cafe. anywhere. You don't have That's to go right. anywhere. They're right here. That's yeah. right. So definitely. I mean, by not engaging, we're not only shortchanging the international students who are spending a lot of money to come here, we're also shortchanging domestic students who aren't getting long-term benefit from this incredible opportunity. And perhaps we're shortchanging ourselves as a country. That's right. I think we might stop it here. Julie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, James. I really hope people read this narrative. It's a great read. It's a fascinating subject. And by the end of it, I really felt that all my questions had been answered. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for writing this really great narrative. And those interested in learning more about this topic can visit the Scanlon Institute website, which is scanlaninstitute.org.au backslash narratives to download the full version of the narrative or listen to the audio version, which is also online. I'll repeat that web link, scanlaninstitute.org.au backslash narratives. Thanks very much, Joey. Thank you for listening to the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute podcast. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with your network. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter or subscribe to our mailing list at scanlaninstitute.org.au to ensure you don't miss future episodes.